Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. There's a great deal of talk around the world about populism and the threat of democratic backsliding, but this concern has really been perhaps most serious in regard to the United States. This is not least because of the United States' tremendous power in the world, but also because it creates uncertainty for potential foes and partners alike. How does the situation in the United States compare to both other comparable countries and to its own past challenges? My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. We're fortunate to have with us today Professor Daniel Ziblatt, who is Eaton Professor of the Science of Government and director of the Center for European Studies at Harvard University. His research focuses on Europe and the comparative study of democracy. He's the author of four books, including How Democracies Die, co-authored with Stephen Levitsky, which was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into unbelievably 30 languages. In 2023, he published, again with Steve Levitsky, a book called The Tyranny of the Minority, The Tyranny of the Minority, uh, and again was a, a New York Times bestseller. And indeed, in 2023, Professor Ziblatt was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Congratulations, and thanks for being with us, Daniel Ziblatt. Great to be with you, John. Thanks very much for taking the time. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about these two most recent books with Steve Levitsky. And uh, in uh, the 2008 How Democracies Die, you and Levitsky see the United States, it seems to me, which has often been or often is enamored of its own special place in the history of democracy and the history of the world. You see it as unexpectedly given to a dying democratic future. And you ultimately suggest that we will have a reprieve from democratic death, but you're not entirely sure. You offer three scenarios where things might go good, bad, and sort of in between. Uh, where would you say we are in your post-Trump presidency you know, predictions about where we'd be? And how optimistic are you now that we will avoid the death of our democracy? Yeah, well... Um... Thank you. And I th- I think the it's good to be with you. Um, let me answer the question. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I really regard the book How Democracies Die. We wrote that really with the intention of really sending not making predictions as much as sending warnings of what could happen uh, and trying to say, you know, what has happened in other countries around the world uh, when democracy has gotten into trouble? What are the warning signs? And we saw some of the same warning signs in the U.S. So really, the goal is to send a message to fellow citizens, you know, that something like this could happen in the U.S., 
these this is how we would know it's happening. Um, and you know, we ended that book though, sort of trying to reflect on what what are prospects for the future. And I guess the only people worse than political scientists at making predictions are economists. So um, you know, I would say we were not really trying to make pr- predictions, but trying to lay out different scenarios at the end of the book. And in that, I think one of the last chapters there, we kind of you know imagine one scenario may be the establishment of a smooth functioning authoritarian system. And I actually sort of think that they thought then and continue to think that's not likely. I mean, in a sense, Putin's Russia or Orban's Hungary. It's sort of hard to imagine the U.S. Because there's sources of resilience that we could talk about in the U.S., I think the idea that we would just sort of jump back from this and we would look back in the rearview mirror and say that was this terrible moment in history and everything's fine also strike me as unlikely. And in some ways, that middle scenario is sort of where we are, and I guess where I have always thought we would be, um, which is a highly unstable and increasingly unstable democracy. Where, and and the roots of that instability are in some ways the resilience of American democracy. I mean, there are these threats certainly that we face that are similar to other countries, but uh, um, you know, our federal system, our highly diversified economy with geographical locales of of wealth spread out across the country mean there's a and the strength of the Democratic Party itself uh, mean there's a strong Democratic opposition. So unlike Hungary, unlike uh, Russia, you know, there's great sources of resilience, and when faced off against threats, the result is instability. And so I think the kind of dysfunction that we see in Congress, the inability to address underlying real problems in our society, climate change, gun control, uh, reflect that. And then also the increasing uh, role of violence and the shadow of violence. Uh, that that also makes me very worried. So these things, I, I think in a way we are where we are, we are in the future now. Um, and, you know, things could get worse. But, um, you know, I think democracy is not operating as anybody would like it to in the U.S. right now, anybody who's committed to democracy. And so that's not a particularly optimistic outcome, but that's sort of where we are, I think, right now. So uh, let me follow up on that a little bit. You, you've written a, a couple of other books, which I may not have mentioned in the uh, introduction, uh, but one of them is about conservative parties. And I think a lot of people have pointed precisely to conservative parties as a kind of Achilles heel of democracies in a certain sense, or at least in the current context. And having a, a conservative party that is, of course, committed you know, to, to democracy is a crucial fact or a crucial issue. And we have a Republican Party now that in many ways is not committed to democracy, and that presents a huge problem. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that issue. I mean, the importance of having, you know, a party that's not necessarily, you know, committed to great goals like social democracy and things like that, but rather, you know, wants to maintain in a certain sense, at least aspects of the status quo, but then kind of goes off the deep end. I mean, what, what has happened in those other contexts? Yeah, so so the, the book you're referring to is really a comparative historical account of Britain and Germany in the mostly in the 19th up through the 1930s. And the and the point was really to make the argument or I came to the discovery, I think, against my own inclinations in a way that conservatives were a cre- critical factor in the stabilization of democracy. Uh, so, you know, British Britain uh, had conservatives, Lord Salisbury, reactionaries, anti-Semites, racists. Uh, who had lots of power, who were in principle opposed to democracy. But in Britain, the Conservative Party over the course of the 19th century 
didn't necessarily become convinced of democracy, but it learned to comply and learned to actually win in democracy and to maintain access to the to power in a way. Um, and so this allowed for a more stable, perhaps incomplete, not entirely satisfactory uh, democracy, but democracy nonetheless to emerge. You contrast this to uh, Germany, where you also had land where landed elites were powerful, landed elites were opposed to democracy. Uh, but in that case, they didn't organize themselves in a form of a conservative party that could win elections. Uh, they were existentially fearful of the working class and viewed it as a civilizational challenge, resisted democracy, resisted party building. And so by the time Germany reached the Weimar period, they couldn't compete. And this opened the door in a way to even more radical right forces, the rise of Nazism. So that led me to the to the conclusion, again, again, not really where I had expected to start when I began that project, that conservatives are critical, and in particular, conservatives committed to a constitutional democratic order. And by committed, I mean you know, maybe partly convinced, but at least a con conservatives who think that it's in their interest to play the democratic game. And that may be imperfect, but that's really what democracy in part is about, is getting the, the old regime, the opponents of democracy, to buy in enough that there can be alternations of power and we can achieve some of the things that people want to achieve. So I think looking at the U.S., you know, so again, that book was really ended in 1933, but there were clear implications that has really informed these other two more recent books that I've written, because I, th you know, there's no question about it. The U.S., you know, I, I say it hasn't turned into to Vladimir Putin's Russia or Viktor Orban's Hungary, but what's unique about the U.S. among peer nations is that it has experienced democratic backsliding over the last uh, five, eight years, I would say. You know, so 19 in 2016, the U.S. had a Freedom House score of 93, you know, on a scale scale of one zero to 100 putting it basically in league with Great Britain, Germany, Japan, other democracies, you know, that we like to compare ourselves to. Today, uh, the Freedom House score has reached uh, 84, dropped to 84, which puts us uh, on par with Argentina, um, uh, below Romania, uh, other democracies that are kind of people are shocked to discover we're being compared to. So how has that happened? And I think a big part of that story is of, of what has happened is the conservative party in the United States has turned against democracy uh, in a way that is really unusual. Old parties tend not to turn, have participated peacefully in elections for a long time, have tended not to turn away from democracy. We, in fact, writing the book, um, Tyranny of the Minority, we had trouble finding comparisons. I mean, there are some historically within the US, the Democratic Party, the Southern Democratic Party, and in other countries. And so this, this turn away from democracy of the Republican Party, um, which we could talk about, you know, why that has happened. But the unwillingness to accept election losses, the willingness to embrace violence, the unwillingness to distance uh, mainstream politicians to distance themselves from really extremist anti-democratic forces are all signs of a party turning away from democracy. And it's hard to sustain a democracy when one party, especially a very big, powerful party, turns away from democracy. Well, let's indeed talk about why that happened. I mean, uh, you know, and you're previous answer also kind of you know tiptoed up to the brink of the nazis and i suppose in that sense you know overlapped 10 years or so of italian fascism and people use that compare or invoke that notion that we're sort of fascist or on the brink of fascism i, I you know and that historically had a lot to do with violence in politics so i'd be curious you know what you think has gone wrong in the republican party and how close or is that notion of you know we're going fascist kind of a distraction yeah so on the first part of that i mean there's lots of stuff going on and it's it's really a question that I feel like we don't fully have 
you know, there's no consensus, as, you know, among scholars who are studying this because we're living through it. The 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 angle that we take in our in our book is to focus on the degree to which um, America's demographic transformation increased democratization. I mean, up and you know, make no mistake. I mean, between 1965 and uh, 2016, the U.S. was becoming more democratic. I mean, you know, there's today for the first time in American history, the number of uh, black members of Congress, the percentage of black members of Congress is the same as the percentage in the U.S. population. So there's certain positive trends in U.S. democracy. And and a lot of these have to do with the uh, transformation of the U.S. into what sometimes people call multiracial democracy, which basically just means, you know, everybody of all background, individuals of all backgrounds have, uh, you know, approaching equal political rights, you know, facing the rule of law, political rights, the right to vote, et cetera. Uh, so as we approach that, as America becomes more diverse, um, what's striking about the Republican Party is that after the 1960s, it doubled down and reached out to new segment of voters who had, who uh, felt left behind by the Democratic Party in the U.S. South. And the party became the party of racial conservatives who who were viewed these demographic and, and democratic changes with with some ambivalence, if not resistance. And the Republican Party, you know, was a smart electoral strategy in the short run. The Republican Party did very well in the 1980s and, you know, through the 1990s into the 2000s. But what's happened is as American societies become more diverse and the Republican Party has not uh, become more diverse, it reminds me in many ways of uh, of the German conservatives before 1914, which is that they're kind of locked into a kind of bunker, a strategy that's doubling down on a kind of segment of the electorate that's shrinking and unable uh, to break out of that is increasingly fearful of what full democracy would mean. Um, you know, so I understand that there's kind of this sense that the Republican Party, there's, a, there's you know, one view of this, there's strong continuities going back, you know, before Goldwater, you know, to the New Deal even, uh, that the Republican Party's always been anti-democratic. And there's certainly strands within the Republican Party that have always been that way. But, um, you know, there's been a battle between these two forces of of kind of more democratic forces within the Demo- Republican Party. I mean, they did the Republican Party did overwhelmingly support the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. I mean, there have always been strands within the Republican Party that have been re- re- reluctant and resistant to kind of renewing it. I mean, there are some Republicans who voted against renewing it. But by and large, the Republican Party has remained committed to democracy until really the time we got to in a little bit before the Trump year was increasingly turning away from it. And I think it was being driven by in part by voters who had been kind of put into one party and a gen- and a generation of political parties playing on this kind of racial fear. You now have a now have a large segment of the electorate that views democracy uh, and multiracial democracy in particular as a threat and a danger. And so I think that in large part is fueling what what has what has happened over the last uh, 10 years. Right. You asked me about you asked me about fascism, though, too. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I know this is a very heated debate. I mean, there are those who think that it's, you know, naive to not call this fascist. There are others who say it's ahistorical to call what's happening fascist. And, you know, it's I guess it's an important debate, but I think it's maybe even more important to kind of call out the precise behaviors uh, that are unacceptable and that are threatening. And I think, for instance, one thing that I, you know, even in our most recent books, didn't fully appreciate. I mean, we we decry people, politicians' uh, unwillingness to confront violence, political violence, as a real bad sign, and um, I think that's only problems only gotten worse. So, you know, the set the sense that election workers are being threatened. You know, Mitt Romney 
uh, you know, in this account of his after the impeachment vote in 2021, he claims that there were U.S. senators, Republican senators who wanted to convict Trump, but were fearful for their lives. You know, if that's really true, you know, we're living in an environment in which political violence is playing really an outsized role in our politics. And, you know, and so that's certainly connected to fascism. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, that's what violence played a similar role in the 1920s and 1930s. But whether one calls it a fascist or not, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I think it's more the point is to say that um, that. You know, political violence is anti-democratic in the set. I mean, in a lot of different ways. But one way that you know I hadn't really, really fully appreciated is that it gives, in the same way that people have decried the outsized influence of money, those with more money have more influence. Those who threaten political violence suddenly gain more influence. The way that politics is supposed to work in a democracy is that politicians are supposed to make decisions based on what they think their constituents want or what they think is the right thing to do. If they don't do what the voters want, the voters vote them out. But if you have violence, the shadow of violence hanging over these decisions, this is clearly not democratic, and it's 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 you know a basic violation of of you know key principles of you know human rights and so on. And so I think it's really, really very frightening. And you know I, I'm happy to I don't really use the word fascist, but I clearly see the parallels. And I think that part of that maybe one way of one cut at this. No, stop after this is that, that I think of these things in very evolutionary terms, you know, so the, fascism is the kind of outgrowth of a politics that emerged dynamically. One a party at one point might not be fascist, but it may become fascist. And so to kind of have a checklist and to sort of try to essentialize a party, say this party is fascist or it's not party, it's not fascist is sort of to miss the point. You know, the, the German conservatives themselves weren't fascist, but they enabled the fascists and and the politics became fascist. And I think there is that risk happening again. Um, and so that's that's what obviously concerns me. All right. I mean, my colleague Ben Het in the history department, I don't know if you know his work, but I think very much sees the situation in the kind of 19, early 1930s sort of uh, comparison. And as you say, the conservatives not being fascist themselves, but kind of facilitating and assuming that they can control the, you know, the beast uh, that yeah, they, is really, he's really theirs. But yeah, there's, there's, clear. there's this there's this line. um from Churchill, he was talking about something different, but he said, you know, appeasement is, you know, feeding a crocodile thinking you're going to be the last one eaten. You know, it's really clear. I mean, my my book on, on German conservatives, you know, there are these stories of this one aristocratic German conservative who was playing tennis uh, after the Nazis came to power in his club. And when, once, the, you know, they came for, you know, he was somebody who had been critical of the Nazis, but not critical, you know, too a little too critical. Um, and so they came for him. He had to escape out the back of his club in his tennis whites, escape to England. Um, you know, and this is the fate of conservatives enabling fascists. And so I, obviously this is there's I mean, there's an uncanny parallels, I think, to the present day. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Interesting, except that that guy probably then got to play at the All England Club, but life life is unfair in any case. um, So I mentioned earlier when we were talking about, you know, that I saw these two books as having a kind of Tocquevillian influence, strong Tocquevillian influences. But the earlier book, it seemed to me, was about saying, that the institutions won't save us. It's really more about the norms that we hold or what Tocqueville called, and one of my dissertation advisors called habits of the heart. So it's really about, you know, how people believe, you know, the world works and their own deep commitments to certain, you know, unstated norms and values and that sort of thing. But the new book, it seems to me, is much more intent on, as I think you say, democratizing the democracy and reforming institutions in ways that seems to me the founders would be, you know, not necessarily enthusiastic about. So, I mean, I think you're aware that you're swimming upstream to some degree with some of these proposals, but as you, you know, say, uh, lots of things have happened that people thought were crazy and would never happen, like the abolition of slavery, for example. Uh, and, you know, it takes a long time often. So so this gets back to your point, your earlier point about the sources of resilience, I think, and how you see those, you know, working. Yeah, so I think the thing that really directed our attention <clears throat> to norms in the first book, and, you know, not all norms matter. Not all norms are democratic. We have anti- there's anti-democratic norms. So if they one has to investigate the content of the norms to know whether they help a democracy or not. And one of the key norms that we focus on is this norm what we call mutual toleration, uh, which is essentially the idea that you can a- accept your competitors uh, as legitimate contenders for power. And that's really critical in a democracy. Um, you know, the, you know, going back to the the first uh, transition of power between parties in 1800 in the U.S. That was really di- very difficult. And so this is a norm that has to be learned, and it's essential for a democracy that nobody has a monopoly on truth. And if you want to live in a democracy, you have to be willing to lose and to let the other guy win, even if you think they're potentially dangerous. And at least publicly tolerating, uh, you know, you know, publicly tolerating what you privately despise. In effect, um, that's what that's all I think toleration is, right? Public accepting what you privately despise. So, uh, which which uh, is a definition of tolerance that I got from my dissertation advisor, Ken Jowett, which is something he, I remember him once saying in a lecture, publicly accepting what you privately despise. It's a kind of minimalist definition. That's critical. And it's not something that's written in any constitution. And, um, you know, I think that's very important. And the problem is, I mean, the reason we kind of shifted to institutions formal institutions in our second book is that we're we're in a situation where the norms are no longer doing the job. I mean, they're not enough. Um, and this comes back a lot. I mean, the focus on institutions really comes back to our earlier discussion on conservative parties, because what's pretty clear is the Republican Party part. The second half of the story, I mean, I said what happened to the Republican Party is that it's turned against democracy 
because of a kind of bunker mentality. But the second parallel to 19th century Germany, in my mind, is part of the reason the 19th century German conservatives continued down this path of radicalization without coming back was because they were fearful, because they were fearful of the civilizational challenges that they think they confronted. But second, because they had they were protected by a set of undemocratic institutions, the German conservatives could retain access to power without actually having to compete and win majorities because of malapportionment election institutions that gave extra weight to what the wealthy landowning classes because of their access to the bureaucracy. And so when, when a political party has these kinds of protections in place, it doesn't have the same incentives to to transform itself. I mean, normally politics is supposed to operate like a market. I mean, that's at least in principle how democracies should work. You lose, you regroup, you figure out what you're doing wrong, you come up with a new strategy, you try to reach out to new voters uh, to figure out ways of winning. Now, in the U.S., we have this, I mean, I guess the parallel I see is in the U.S., the Republican Party, it's not protected by the three-class voting system as the German conservatives were, but it's protected by a U.S. Senate that gives them extra boost. they protected by the Electoral College, which gives the Republican Party, because it represents rural areas um, predominantly, as overrepresented in these areas, is given an extra boost. And because of those access to those two institutions has special access to the Supreme Court. And so the you know when faced off with this kind of perceived civilizational challenge, the party doesn't need to win, adjust because it doesn't need to win majorities. And so the push to focus on institutions is to say, well, we need to change the incentives facing the Republican Party. The norms are no longer enough. Um, norms of fair play and whatever mutual toleration are not enough. And so so our claim is we need to change our institutions. Because it's only through that way that the Republican Party will be convinced that it needs to actually win. If, if the Republican Party had to win majorities, it wouldn't be doubling down on its white nationalist strategy. It would be much harder to do that. The incentives for, for change would be greater. You know, the Republican Party today can win the presidency with 47 percent of the vote. If it needed to win over 50 percent of the vote, that's only a three percent difference. But I really think it would make a big difference. And there would be a, across the entire political landscape. This would push the Republican Party to become much more a party that that is pushing towards the middle and trying to win over most Americans, which is not where the Republican Party is today. Right. So, I mean, in making this argument in the book, in the newer book, um, you know, you stress comparative differences with, you know, the countries that we typically compare ourselves with. And I mean, I think uh, one of the differences that you highlight and emphasize is, of course, with regard to, to voting the bedrock uh, institution of, you know, a democratic process. So uh, maybe you could talk about, uh, you know, how we're different and the fact that we don't have uh, a constitutional right to to vote in the, in the Constitution. And that's a pretty striking fact that you and R Richard Hazen have, you know, also pointed to. Uh, but it sort of reminds me of this kind of... Um, notion and i mean i've written a little bit about american exceptionalism how there's a the good one you know about how we're great you know a great exemplar to world history uh but there's also a kind of bad exceptionalism you know that sees us as you know lacking certain things i mean for tocqueville you know it was uh, the estate which later on people on the left said yeah well that's a problem because we don't have much of a welfare state but in any case, uh, this seems to me an example of, you know, what I call bad exceptionalism. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I think actually the good and the bad are, are very much tightly connected to each other in a way because, you know, the U.S. has the world's oldest written constitution. Um, it's a model. It's in, served in the, in the 19th century, a model for Latin American countries as they were democratizing. Uh, it's, you know, the, the early experiment with republicanism uh, was a model for other countries and inspiration. And so, you know, that that's the good, I guess, right, in some respects. But there were also, because it's the oldest written constitution in the world, there are a lot of, and it's the most difficult constitution in the world to change, which is really critical. It, there's a lot of features of our constitution as it was written and still today that are that are pre-democratic. I mean, it was written before a democratic era. It was written in an era when, you know, mass enfranchisement obviously was not really on the table. Um, and a lot of the kind of values that we associate with democracy weren't as fully accepted. There wasn't as much of a consensus about these. So we have this pre-democratic constitution that, you know, in some, you know, in some respects, you know, liberal democracy is about certainly about two core things. I mean, it's about the collective will of the people, majority rule, but it also has the second pillar, which is the protection of minority rights um, and the protection of individual rights. Uh, and, you know, we, our constitution has that and people point that out. You know, we have a bill of rights. It's been, you know, more or less, more or less effectively enforced at different points in time. Um, but, you know, in principle, we have these two features, but we also have these other, we have a kind of another counter majoritarian institution, set of institutions in our constitution that are not particularly democratic. Uh, you know, and again, namely the electoral college, which allows the loser of a popular vote to win the presidency um, uh, with the Senate, uh, which in you know, two states per state. Two senators per state, no matter the size of the state, the Supreme Court with lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. Um, so these are three core features of our constitutional structure as it has emerged that give outsized weight to political minorities. Now, um, over time, other democracies, as they were established, other regimes, as they were established in the 19th century, had many of these same kinds of institutions. I mean, it's very common to have unelected upper chambers. Um, uh, to have monarchical vetoes, to have indirect elections, to have plural voting, um, uh, and so on. And so, you know, these are institutions that are clearly not democratic. But what's striking, and this is really something that we kind of felt I discovered for myself in the in writing of this book, is that and we tell the story of this beginning really the late 19th century, early 20th century. A lot of democracies gradually shed these institutions. So the House of Lords uh, lost its veto over tax bills at the beginning of the 20th century. Other upper chambers, especially in federal systems, Germany, uh, Austria, made their upper chambers more proportional to population. Not perfectly proportional, but more bigger states got more representation than smaller states. Uh, other countries, Belgium, uh, the Scandinavian country, and uh, not Belgium rather, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, eventually got rid of upper chambers altogether uh, because these bodies were regarded as redundant. So they democratized upper chambers. Other chambers, uh, other countries introduced proportional representation. Uh, other countries in introduced term limits or retirement ages for Supreme Court justices. Every other democracy did this. And then every other de presidential democracy on earth got rid of its electoral college. Argentina was the last country in 1994. Uh, and so today we're the only democracy in the world with an electoral college for selecting a president. We're the only, we're the, we have the most malapportioned upper chamber in the world, except for Brazil and Argentina. Uh, we are the only democracy in the world with a lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. So we're real. I mean, it, it, this is an except, we are an exception, and institutionally speaking, in each on each of these dimensions. And when you add them all up, we're really an outlier. And I, and I guess the point is to say that this is 
partly to explain where why we are where we are. So this is why I began to focus on these formal institutions. I mean, I'm not in such a hardcore institutionalist that I think that you just change the rules of the game and everything changes. But at a minimum, you know, we could make our system a little bit more democratic on each of these dimensions. Uh, I think it would make our system more democratic. And you mentioned the kind of American exceptionalism of a kind of underdeveloped uh, welfare state. I mean, part of that has to do with the strength of our state, but part of that also has to do with the fact that we have a set of institutions that thwart the will of majorities. Most Americans would support more aggressive social policies. I think most Americans would support efforts to address poverty, higher minimum wage at a minimum, but our institutions often thwart that. And so I think in a way, if our system were more democratic, this would help address some of these underlying uh, social ills that many of us uh, see in our own society. And, uh, you know, I think this would also have the knock-on effect potentially of of changing incentives for the Republican Party. Right. So uh, since you've raised it, I mean, I guess I want to ask, why do you think this outlier status or outlier character of the political system, among other things, uh, has come to be? I mean, why did that happen? Yeah. So there's really a there's a formal reason why that's the case, a pretty obvious reason at some level, which is that we have the hardest, I mean, the people who study this, the scholars who study this have ranked that the U.S. as the hardest constitution in the world to change. You know, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds in the Senate, three-quarters of state legislatures is a really a steep hill to climb. And as a result of that, we've only amended the Constitution, you know, a few, a few dozen times. Whereas, uh, you know, Norway, uh, we tell the story of Norway in our book. In Norway, it's the second oldest written constitution in the world. Uh, written at the beginning of the 19th century, it's amended its constitution hundreds of times. And, uh, you know, I think there's concern that the, the founders were a little bit concerned about being able to change, some founders anyway, not Jefferson, but others, about the constitution being able to be changed too often. And I think that's a that's a legitimate concern. But I think we're at the raw, we're at the very other end of the spectrum. You know, Norway is the most democratic country in the world, according to all the internationalists indices, among at least among them, which is not to say that that's, you know, being able to change the constitution is the reason. It's, there's lots of other differences. I mean, as scholar compared to politics, we know there's other things going on, but certainly if if we if it were easier to change our constitution, we'd be in a better situation. That That's one thing, but I, you know, but there are ways of, you know, but that doesn't doom us, I would say. And that's part of the reason we wrote the book. I, you know, I don't think that's going to change, but there, there needs to be a, uh, a kind of reinvigoration of the idea that we can change our political system, whether constitutionally or not. I mean, the, the, the difficulty of change in the Constitution has created a set of norms, in fact, uh, so norms do enter the story again, that we simply can't change our Constitution. And we can't change it's our political system sort of out of reach. I mean, this applies to many Americans sort of feel our Constitution, our democracy is out of reach. And, you know, there is a history in the U.S. of moments of, of incredible democratic breakthrough after the Civil War, the early progressive era, the 1960s through the 1970s, where major democratic reforms happened. And part of the point of the book is to try to, you know, you know make a call for reinvigorating this and to kind of create a culture of amendment, as Jill Lepore describes it in work that I think is coming out soon, where we can, you know, we, we need to broaden our constitutional imagination to realize, you know, even if the constitutional reforms are difficult, and some of these, are, you know, take, you know, are serious, formidable challenges to, to changing our constitution, there are ways, there are workarounds, there are ways either of changing our constitution or through legislation, making our, our political system more democratic. Right. So maybe one last question. I don't want to take up your whole day, but um, I'm curious, uh, you know, there was another meeting of the G20 recently, very recently. And, 
you know, one hears all these stories about the, you know, in many ways, the main topic of conversation, it seems, is what's going to happen in the U.S. election. And I guess the question is, I mean, again, it goes back in a way to the issue of resilience. Um, and I suppose in a way to the idea of the deep state, which is, in many ways is what I thought kept us from disaster in 1916 uh, to 2020. Um, you know, what words of uh, encouragement would you give our friends and partners uh, in Europe? Well, I, you know, according to the social science theories, I mean, there's two predictors of democratic uh, endurance. One is the wealth of a country. Rich democracies don't die. Uh, the second is the age of a democracy. Age democ old democracies don't die. And so we're, you know, however you count it, we're a rich democracy and we're a pretty old democracy. You know, even if we say democracy fully began in 1965 in the U.S., that, that puts us in the camp of a pretty old democracy. So according to social science, we should be fine. Um, you know, that's not totally satisfactory, I think, because we've had experience experienced democratic backsliding over the last several years despite that I think the sort to me the sources of resilience and the ways in which our democracy can be saved are um the the mobilization of civil society I think essentially it, you know the deep I think the, a strong state helps uh, that, that you pointed to that I think that's right but you know I, you know one thing I'm, I'm about to get on a plane to fly to Germany uh, this evening. And one of the things I'm going to be doing there for the week is talking to people that were behind the, the kind of mass mobilization that's happened over the last several weeks in Germany. You know, millions of people across German cities, you know, hundreds of thousands, often in very small towns, uh, taking a very public stand saying with the slogan, we are the firewall. I mean, there's this notion in Germany that there has to be a kind of legal firewall between far right parties and mainstream parties. And, you know, there's been the, the rise and in increasing success of the far right in Germany. Uh, and uh, German citizens have, have kind of taken to the streets. And this, you know, people don't take to the streets just on their own, requires civil society organization and a kind of declaration of what kinds of behaviors are unacceptable. A public statement of that, um, a public firewall in a certain way. Um, and about what kinds of institutional reforms or ideas, you know, shipping migrants to concentration camps on the border and so on, this kind of this kind of nonsense that's being proposed uh, by people connected to the Bush or the, by, to the Trump uh, campaign. Um, you know, so I think these kind of public statements of this really are helpful in establishing the norms of what's acceptable and unacceptable. And at the end of the day, I think it's really critical that when I say civil society, I don't just mean activists. I mean business. I mean religious leaders. I think it's really critical for the this challenge to not be viewed in partisan grounds. And I think the real difficulty is that anytime anybody connected to politics makes a statement about the threats that our democracy faces, it's kind of cast into, into partisan into partisan terms. And what I would hope is that business leaders, civil society leaders, religious leaders, if conservative or not, committed to democracy, kind of come out and make public stances, not stand statements on this, that we kind of establish a set of um a set of kind of hard lines, normative lines that I think can actually be quite powerful. I mean, the the, the way that the way that Viktor Orban came to power in 2010 and has stayed in power is that the democratic opposition fractured. The way that the Law and Justice Party in Poland was ejected from power is that the democratic opposition stayed together despite intense disagreements. And so I think there's a lesson in that. The way that our democracy will be preserved, if, at least in the short run, is that those who are committed to democracy overlook their intense disagreements 
on foreign policy, on the Israel-Hamas conflict, on race, on immigration, to realize at least we share a common commitment to democracy. That's only a short-run solution, I should say, though, because um, you know at the end of the day, democracy is about competition. But we have to all be competing within the uh, within a kind of framework where we accept the rules of the game. And so I think we have to get through this short-term um, emergency, in effect, with this broad democratic coalition. That's how it's happened in other places. Um, and you know, look forward to a day where you know, uh, you know, we don't have to regard Liz Cheney as an ally, um, and where people can really disagree on foreign policy, on real policy, and you know, hope that day could come. But in the mean meantime, I mean, I think a broad coalition is necessary. Well, great, thanks so much for that mm, relatively optimistic uh, ending. It's more optimistic than your predecessor Jagosh Eckert was when he. <laughs> did this interview. Uh, of course, he was coming from Poland and had a somewhat bleaker view of things, understandably. But thanks very much. Thanks yeah. very much for taking the time to do this. Thanks so much, Sean. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Daniel Ziblatt of Harvard University for his insights about the fate of democracy in the United States and around the world. I also want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for letting us use his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for this show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.